Welcome to season two of the First Prez podcast. Last season was titled Gathered and Sent. It was all about our purpose and mission, being both gathered as the church to equip and encourage one another and sent to be the church in our neighborhoods, schools, and workplaces. This season, we're focusing on the five values that guide all of our decisions as a church. We believe that we are called to be disciple-making disciples of Jesus, who are biblically literate, spiritually formed, mission-focused, and gospel-fluent. So welcome to season two, Values and Direction. Well, I am sorry that we are trying to reopen cautiously, but that we're doing that in the midst of everything that's going on in the world. I would love it if the first time you were back here, we are just celebrating and we're talking about everything that's happy and joyful. It's just not what's going on in the world. So we're trying to be honest with what God's calling us to do today, really. uh, If you haven't listened or been a part of worship for the past couple weeks, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to those messages, watch those services, because they really do set up where we're going today. Last week I mentioned that we're taking a break from our focus on our values, that we kind of interrupted our value of being mission-focused. By the end of of today, you'll see that we're going to get back on our values. So as we look around at the state of the world today, the situation that we see in our culture, I mean, it's just a mess, right? I mean, we're in the midst of a pandemic, an economic crisis, and now there's societal and cultural battle that's happening over race and equality, violence, brutality, justice. Over these past couple months, I've heard people say, and I have said myself, come Lord Jesus. (laughs) Any of you? Those are the famous words that John uses in Revelation. Those are the final words of our scriptures. Not the end, but come Lord Jesus. And the people of Israel, they felt the same way. Their society was a mess. There was chaos and disorder. There was racism. There was injustice. They longed for what they called the day of the Lord, which is just the Jewish version of come Lord Jesus. They cried out, and they longed for God to come and save them. But there was a problem. Over the past couple weeks, we've read the prophets Micah and Amos. We've heard already today from Isaiah, we've read in the Psalms. And in doing so, we have found that the enemy of God was not some outside army. It was not some pagan nation. It was not some other religion. The enemy of God was God's own people. And like I said, Micah and Amos aren't alone. You heard Beth tell that powerful retelling of Isaiah 1. It is the same message throughout. All the prophets speak this way. The Old Testament speaks this way. Jesus and Paul speak this way. For Israel, the nations surrounding them and threatening them, they were just the means by which God would judge and punish them. The nations weren't the real enemy. The real enemy of God was Israel herself. And I'm not making a judgment on Israel. These are the words of her own scriptures. The Old Testament in so many ways given to us as a confession of a people who turned away from their God. So I want you to listen to these words from the prophet Malachi. This is another courtroom scene just like Micah a couple weeks ago. 
and we get another crippling indictment against the children of God, the ones whom God saved from slavery, the ones that God delivered into the promised land. He was with them in the wilderness, the one who God loves and protects, the children for whom God built an everlasting covenant, the children to whom God would come in the flesh to make all things right. You have to remember these are his beloved, his treasures, and this is what his prophet had to say to them on God's behalf. And this is Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. He's not saying, do not fear me. He's saying, those who deprive the foreigners among you of justice, those who do not fear me, just to make that clear. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Who can endure the day of his coming? who can stand when he appears. Let's pray. Father, we trust that you've been present with us and you are present with us today as we continue to walk through some difficult passages and hear some difficult things. So help us to reflect, help us to understand the context in which this was said and help us to see what it might mean for us today. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's true. And it is for us as much as it was for them. So be with us and within us that this word would transform us. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So they asked for the day of the Lord to come and Malachi responds, you want the day of the Lord to come? Trust me, you're not ready and you wouldn't survive it. And he goes on to explain why. Listen to this list of failures Because when I look at this list of failures, one of these things doesn't sound like the others. He says, I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. I don't know if you notice, but except for the mention of sorcerers, everything on this list is practical, it's tangible, it's of this world. You see, it's really easy to make the assumption, honestly, it's safer and simpler to make the assumption that Israel's failures were spiritual failures, that their soul was all God really cared about. But Israel's crisis was not simply spiritual. God was furious about very worldly issues like justice and what we in the church need to call social righteousness. Israel's problem wasn't just spiritual. It was painfully practical. 
So today, I want to focus on one of these worldly issues in particular, one of their failures. In the midst of God's anger about sorcery and adultery and unfair business practices, God indicts the people for oppressing the widow and the fatherless. Now, I want you to listen to this from a source that I found earlier this week. It said the Hebrew word for orphan refers to a child who's raised without a father, whether or not the mother is still alive. So the word is more literally translated, not orphan, but fatherless. The Hebrew word is ya'atam. You can see in it the word Adam. Ya'atam literally means without the man. In Israelite society, to be fatherless was to be vulnerable to poverty and to disenfranchisement. And while almost every biblical occurrence of fatherless is referring to actual orphans, the idea of fatherlessness is an image that depicts loss and vulnerability and social disruption. In Israel at that time, the father was the source for provision, for protection. Without him, the woman and her children were in real trouble. They had little to no legal protection. They had no real rights or privileges. That's why the plight of the widow and the fatherless come together in Scripture so often. Now, the Bible uses the word fatherless to tell us that there are people for whom we must advocate because God himself protects and fiercely loves the fatherless. We heard that in the psalm just a minute ago. And God's care and concern for them is expressed tangibly on earth through his laws and commandments. The Israelites were to represent God's compassion and justice in their treatment of the orphans. They were to be obedient to those tangible expressions of God's protection and love. And they failed. That psalm that we read, it set God's care for the powerless against the human tendency to take advantage of them. And the prophets tell us the same, that Israel failed in this role and was judged because of her failure. Now, I want you to hang on to all that because I'm going to shift gears for a minute. I promise you this will relate, and in the end, this will be wrapped up with a nice bow. But I want to tell you about a man that I know, somebody other than Jesus. Now, my father-in-law was an educator, and he spent his entire career working in Aldine ISD. And most of you know that Jennifer and I dated all throughout high school and college. Uh, and her dad is really more than just my father-in-law now that I'm an adult. He's been the model in my life of what a father and husband should be since I was like 13 years old. And the more that I've gotten to really know him and now knowing more about his career, the more I understand that he's exactly the kind of man that our world needs right now. And when he sees this on Sunday, that's going to embarrass him, but I don't care. Too bad. And I want to explain why I say that to you by sharing with you just a text interaction that he and I had while I was preparing for this week. And I'm paraphrasing some, but it went something like this. Um, I asked him just to start to just give me some details about his time in Aldine. He started as an English teacher at G.W. Carver High School, and he served there for three years. He was then a counselor at Eisenhower High School for a year. Just a little, a little odd irony, I guess is the right word. Um, he was there for one year, and it was the senior year of a girl named Danita who was pregnant with a son named Chad. <laughs> so my connection to them goes even before uh, Jennifer and I met. So he was there for one year, and then he went back to Carver and served as the assistant principal for three years. 
Uh, he then went on to serve for 10 years as the principal at the Aldine Contemporary Education Center, and then he served for 12 years as the principal of Aldine Senior High. And after his retirement, he served as the director of special programs for that district. And he was part of a team that ensured a lot of things, but he ensured that the district followed the guidelines for grants that they applied for and received. He was also responsible uh, for many other aspects of district operation, from district elections all the way down to making sure that vendors were following the state child nutrition guidelines. So I asked him about the cultural and ethnic diversity during that time. And he said, the diversity changed continually throughout my career. He said when he started in 1971, the district itself was predominantly white, but by the time he retired, the district had become predominantly black and Hispanic. Now, prior to his career, he lived in the Aldine area, so I was curious about, did he want to work there just because that was his home, or did he have a sense of call to serve a particular community? And his answer, I think, actually taught me and him both a couple of things. He said, frankly, when I started, I just, I needed a job. The school year was about to begin, and I hadn't been offered a, and a, I hadn't been offered a position with any of the districts that I applied to. I applied to Aldine last, and it was very late in the summer. And while I was at the personnel office, the director saw me and asked if I had time to talk about a position. During the interview, I was asked if I would have any concerns about working in a school where I would be in the racial minority. The district was predominantly white, but not all the schools were. So he went on. He said, I hadn't thought much about it, but I really needed a job. And I told him it wouldn't be much of a concern for me. He said that by his third year of teaching, the entire student body at that school was black. The staff had eight white members out of approximately 65 faculty and staff. But he said, I didn't really dwell on the color issue. I was glad to have the job and I was determined to do it well. He said, I didn't really think about it much. He said, it wasn't until my second year at Carver that I learned that my appearance, it did matter and was somewhat special. He said, I was one of the only white teachers who came back after teaching there for a year. He said, some of the kids welcomed me back and they told me that since they hadn't run me off the first year, that I was welcome and I could stay as long as I wanted. I'd been accepted. And he said, that made me realize that I had been blessed by being assigned there. And it made me want to do my job even better than before. Now, he would go on to tell me about his transition into administration. He honestly, he kept talking for a really long time, but it's, it's okay. He's good at telling stories. Uh, but he talked about his time from counseling to leading as principal. He served at Aldine Senior High during the peak of their football glory. Uh, Jennifer and the family would often spend Christmas holidays at playoff and championship games at different locations around the state. He spent his entire career working in what became a district where he was the minority, fighting for the best possible education and for opportunity for every student. So here's how I see his service to that district and to those kids. And I asked him if this was fair and if he minded if I shared this, and he said it was. You see, I think when he looks at our culture, and I've heard them say this, when he looks at our culture, he sees opportunity for minority communities. He believes that our culture is one in which all kids can succeed. And honestly, when I hear him say that, I feel uncomfortable because I'm not sure I see our society the same way. But 
I would now argue that the reason he sees opportunity for minority communities where I don't, it's because he actively worked to give all students, regardless of race or gender or economic background, he dedicated his life to giving them a world-class education and the opportunity to succeed, the potential to overcome whatever obstacles stood in their way. And he watched as some took that opportunity and some didn't. He gave his life and his career to them. You see, for him, equality and opportunity, they weren't concepts or talking points. It wasn't political. It was painfully practical. Giving opportunity to those who might otherwise have slipped through the cracks, that was his life. It was his calling. So why do I think that my conversation with him and then what I've read in Malachi and the prophets over the past couple weeks are relevant to today? How are they even relevant to each other? Well, as I've told you for the last couple weeks, I've been listening a lot. Um, I shared with you last week that I don't know what to do about injustice. I don't know what to do about all the issues we're facing today. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, so I decided just to start by listening. And I have to tell you that there's something I've been hearing recently that stuck with me And it's begun to make me pretty uncomfortable. I've heard people comment that one of the biggest problems in the black community is absent fathers. And the argument states that absentee fathers in the black community are a significant reason for the issues the community faces, like drug and alcohol addiction, crime, domestic abuse, and on and on. And it's stated as if those issues only exist in the black community. I have worked in churches in predominantly white communities since 2004. A lot of that time with students and now with families and adults, and I can tell you, drug and alcohol addiction, the sale of illegal drugs, crime, domestic abuse, father neglect, it's prevalent in white communities too. I am the product of father neglect, twice. (laughs) Those issues are all prevalent in white communities. But oftentimes, we have access to the tools to help us deal with our problems, or to help us hide them, or to help us simply get rid of them. And here's the point. As I've been listening, I've noticed that the argument about absentee black fathers, no matter how true it is, it's become nothing more than another but. It's another way to shut down the argument to place blame and hope that we can move on without making any real change in our culture. They need to change their culture. Ours is doing just fine. But like I told you last week, I think we need to watch our butts. I mean, let's assume that the worst figures are accurate. And I do have to tell you, I don't have time to go into it, but after doing quite a bit of research, a lot of these numbers are problematic. But let's assume the worst is true that 70% of black children grow up in a home without a father. Even if that is true, that is not a reason, and it's not an excuse for us to sit back and do nothing. It's an invitation into a mission field. Because Scripture compels us, as a just people representing a loving and just God, Scripture commands us to fight for the rights and the fair treatment of the fatherless. Scripture commands us to seek justice, to push against any oppression, and to advocate for the cause of the fatherless. So no matter how they became fatherless, no matter who left them, 
No matter what caused them to be raised in a home without a father, our job is not to sit back and judge an entire community based on that. Our calling is not to oversimplify the situation so that we can blame all the problems of the black community on the black community. We're commanded to give them an opportunity and to give them hope and to work to correct any issue within our community that might lead to further oppression and exclusion. And I'm not even just talking about our culture and our politics and our world, I'm talking about the church. It is what it is, and all of our races and cultures have, have made this happen, but y'all know, you know when the most segregated time in our country is, right? It's every Sunday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. Online now, but you know what I mean. God's people are commanded to advocate for the fatherless, just as he has done for us. Remember our definition of justice from last week, God's people doing for others what God has done for them. That's what my father-in-law dedicated his life to, whether he intended to or not from the start. That was his calling, and he was obedient to it. So if there's a white man around here who's justified when he says that minority kids do have access to education and the opportunity to succeed in our society, it's him, because he's earned that right because he personally gave that opportunity to them. And not as a politician, not as a civil rights leader, not as a pastor, but as a teacher, as a leader, as a father in the schools and in their neighborhoods, as a man who stepped into their lives to give them hope for a better future. He loved them like a father. He was in many ways a father to what our society considers the fatherless. A friend shared this with me this week. I'll end with this. Um, I told you I've been listening a lot, and God is making a lot of connections along the way. Uh, She wrote this. She said, I think about all the people that God shows me who are in need of prayer or in need of help. So I've begun to actively pray that God would continue to show them to me. And I've begun to realize that the people that are in my garden, whether they're veggies, flowers, or weeds, they're there because God put them there that I was supposed to learn from them, to serve them, to show God to them, talk to God about them, or to fail and stumble along right alongside them. She said, I lost interest in politics and began to develop an interest in the people that God was showing, the people that God had planted in my garden. You see, all of God's children will know the love of God if each of us will simply care for those whom God has brought to us. And in my experience, God is definitely the one planting people in our lives because they sprout up out of nowhere. And that's our job, to care for those whom God has planted in our gardens. Y'all, we can't fix systemic racism, whatever that is. We can't solve corruption in politics. We can't end poverty or hunger or disease. We can't. But we can take care of those whom God has placed in our lives. And to do that, we have to be watching. And we have to be listening. We have to be willing. And then we have to be courageous enough to act. 
to stand up for them when we see this broken and oppressing world take advantage of them. See, we are right to quote the end of Revelation. We are right to say, come Lord Jesus, because that's the only final solution to everything we're facing in this world. But until that day comes, we need to ask ourselves what the Israelites had to ask themselves. Do we really want him to come? Do we want him to hear what we're saying? Do we want him to see what we're doing? Knowing that he is the God who stands with the oppressed, with the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, for all of those who have no voice in this world, will he see and hear us fighting alongside him? Or are we fighting against him? And if we are on the right side of this, it's not condemnation, it's a beautiful opportunity. So this week, upcoming Sunday, for those of you watching at home today, on Sunday, this is Father's Day. Um, And I will tell you, this sermon was hard because I grew up in a home that had just the worst examples for fathers uh, until I met the principal of Aldean Senior High. Don't get me wrong, meeting his daughter was pretty awesome too, uh, but today is about fathers. I had the opportunity to overcome the obstacles in my life because of him and because of his family. I have always said that I'm the son of one father who abandoned me and another father who neglected and hurt me. But now I can say that I'm also the son of a father who modeled Christ's love for me and helped to raise me in the way that I should go. And some of us are given the privilege and the responsibility to be biological fathers and to model God's love to those little DNA copies of us. But we are all given the opportunity to be the hands and feet of God's fatherly love for others. Because biblical fatherhood is not about gender. It's about a lion's protection and a fierce love. And all of us, male and female, have a role to play in this protective, fierce love of others, especially those who are outcast and powerless in our society. So for the church, the issues we're facing today, they're not simply about race or politics or culture. These issues are all about mission. And we are called to be slow to blame, quick to love, and ready to move when God plants an opportunity among us. This is our symbol for the value that we're calling being mission-focused. Instead of a picture of hands and feet, we're using the picture of a geographical location marker. Because wherever you are and whoever you're with, you found your mission field. You're on mission everywhere you go. We just have to pray and listen so that we know what we're called to do while we're there. Glory be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your loving kindness and we're grateful for your corrective words. So God, in the ways that we are on your side, in the ways that we are fighting just like you are for the powerless, encourage us. Keep that fire in our belly. Not that we would be a political movement or any force that this world would recognize, but that we would be a gospel movement. Fueled by love. By a passionate and fierce protection of others because they are your children in the ways that we are off mission, in the ways that we are just parroting what the rest of the world is saying about everything going on, correct us. 
Guide us back to your truth so we can truly be a people of your word filled with your Holy Spirit. Little signs of a coming kingdom living and moving here even now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website. You can also follow us on Facebook and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.